Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California changed its testing guidelines this week to deal with a surge in demand for testing that's led to, in some cases, a two-week wait for results. We'll look at how the new stricter guidelines could affect your ability to get a test, when you should get tested, and what's behind some of the slow turnaround times for results that can make it harder to contain the virus. And we want to hear about your recent experiences getting tested, or trying to. Tell us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It wasn't that long ago when counties were encouraging people with or without symptoms to get tested for COVID-19 as they tried to get as many people as possible tested. Well, things have changed, at least for now. The state released new stricter guidelines this week on who should be tested and when, as it contends with testing backlogs and some patients now reporting wait times of a week or more for results. We look at what this all means for California's ability to contain the virus, and we want to hear from you. Have you been tested? Was it hard to get an appointment or your test results? Joining us now is George Rutherford. He's professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and director of the Prevention and Public Health Group at UCSF's School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rutherford. You bet. Good morning. Also with us is Catherine Ho. She's a healthcare reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for being here, Catherine Ho. Hi, sure thing. So start us off, can you tell us about these new state guidelines to help counties prioritize testing of patients? And what are some of the biggest changes they've made? Yeah, so these came out of um, the state public health department this week, and they basically prioritize um, who is supposed to get their results back the fastest from labs. So the top priority right now is um, hospitalized patients. So those are people who are already um, very, uh, very ill um, with pretty serious symptoms. Um, also near the top are um, residents at skilled nursing facilities and workers at skilled nursing facilities and other congregate care settings. So like jails and prisons. Um, and the reason why is because those settings uh, pose kind of a higher risk of the virus spreading to lots of people um, at any given time. Certainly, it sounds like they're responding to recent events, for example, at San Quentin. One of the things that I noticed was that essential workers, they used to be the top priority for testing. It looks like they've now been dropped down to tier three. Why that? Um, well, the state is having, um, like many states, are having a lot of issues right now with just a lot of people trying to get tested. Um, and so they're having to, um, unfortunately, kind of create this line system where, um, you know, certain people are, are prioritized uh, above others. And you've been finding that wait times for test results or even difficulty getting appointments for tests, that it's varying pretty dramatically. Can you talk about some of the, the different wait times that you've been hearing about? Yes, I mean, there's a, a really wide range and sometimes it seems like it depends uh, by the hour, you know, how crowded some of these test sites are. So I've heard from some Bay Area residents who were able to get tested right away and, you know, sometimes same day and they were able to get the results back uh, the next day. And I've also talked to a lot of people who had to wait um, a week uh, to even make that appointment at a testing site near them. And so some people have had to go a little bit further away than they would have liked to, to find another site uh, to get tested sooner than that because they didn't want to wait. 
Um, and as far as the wait times for test results, that's kind of all over the place as well. So some are 24 hours, you can get those results back. And I mean, I've talked to some people who've waited a week and a half for almost two weeks to get their results back. Wow. And so it sounds like also that it will be much harder for asymptomatic people to get tested. Uh, they may have to wait um, longer to get their results uh, because they're now kind of at the at the bottom of that priority list. Right. So labs are also using that in terms of determining whose results they're processing or whose tests they're processing first. But has this sort of variation or this increase in wait times, have has it been really in the last few weeks? Um, well, we saw this problem um, very early on in the pandemic, I think when uh, healthcare providers were still trying to set up their testing infrastructure and labs were still trying to get their capacity up. So this was a big problem back in, I would say late March, um, earlier than that. And then it kind of got better around mid-April or so as some of these testing systems um, smoothed out some of the kinks. Uh, and then it started picking up again um, I would say the last maybe three or four weeks. Uh, and I think that coincides with when we saw uh, this most recent surge in cases start to pick up because more people overall are, are trying to get tested. And Dr. Rutherford, I mean, it's pretty clear that if you have to wait a while, if you're concerned that you might have been exposed, you have to wait a while to get an appointment and then wait even longer to get tested, that it can really disrupt your life. I mean, if you have to go to work or if you have to plan activities or appointments with friends or family or with dentists or, or physicians. But I guess in addition to that, I mean, I, I imagine it must also make it harder to contain the virus. Yeah, I mean, it's hardly an ideal situation. <clears throat> you know, in an ideal day, in an ideal situation, we'd want less than a day turnaround so we could move to contact tracing as, as rapidly as possible. Um, so this, uh, this slows everything down. Uh, and to the extent that people who, um, who are testing for because they've been exposed or because they have symptoms and are likely to be infected, to the extent that they don't self-quarantine after they get test tested, waiting for the results, they could be walking around spreading the virus. And if you have to wait, say, up to 14 days for results, and that's when often you're told that symptoms will appear, I mean, I think people would be tempted to say, well, what's the point of getting tested if the turnaround is that long? And I guess that's definitely not a message you would want out no, there. No, not a message. And 14 days is the sort of the maximum incubation period. Most people get develop symptoms within five days of exposure and uh, and within another seven days after that, they've stopped being infectious and they're on the other side of the illness. So if it's 14 days total, it's, you know, you're right. You know, always get the Ouija board out and try and figure out your diagnosis. And, and Catherine, how, how are these delays linked to labs? I mean, it sounds like it's happening a lot at Quest and at LabCorp. That's right. And the reason for that is um, a lot of healthcare providers, especially um, the larger systems, have always used Quest and LabCorp to do lab tests. Um, so even, you know, before the coronavirus, uh, you know, if like you needed to go take a drug test before a new job or something, you would probably go to a Quest or LabCorp location. They're just, they're all over and they're very, um, they have locations all around the country and they've kind of been the, you know, standard lab test provider for a long time. Uh, and when the coronavirus happened, uh, a lot of the healthcare providers were sending their tests to these two large commercial labs. And so they just got way, way overwhelmed. And I mean, basically, as you said, these are labs that, you know, process tests nationally. So when surges are happening in other states, it also definitely affects California's ability to get test results in a timely manner. I think that's right. And so have like testing sites had to shut down because of concerns over processing or getting notes or notices that uh, labs are not able to process tests as quickly as they used to? Or what other impacts has this had? Um, I haven't heard of any sites shutting down for that reason. I do know that um, test, some testing sites are trying to use other labs um, that are not Quest and LabCorp. Um, and the problem is, uh, 
a lot of times patients insurance companies will have Quest and LabCorp as the in-network uh, lab test provider. And so the only way for them to, to get a test at no cost uh, is to go to uh, Quest or LabCorp. Um, but I do know that this, the state testing task force is, is aware of this issue and they're working on trying to match up um, you know, labs that do have some extra capacity to run tests and trying to get the tests over to those uh, locations to kind of free up the logjam. So it sounds like you're saying which lab test your doctor or sites work with makes a massive difference potentially in when you'll get your test results. Yes, I, I think that's right. And uh, I understand we're joined now by Paul Markovich, he is, and let me just grab my president and CEO of Blue Shield of California. He's also a former co-chair of California's state testing task force. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul Markovich. Oh, thanks for having me. So we've been talking with Catherine Ho and Dr. Rutherford about problems related to testing. Can you give us a sense of why the rationale for the state putting these kinds of new guidelines in place, especially when they've been touting that they've been sure. able to do more than 100,000 tests a day now? Well, yes. I mean, we we started on March 30th at about 2,000 tests a day, and we're now over 100,000. I think we're in a huge surge. I mean, I think the bottom line is you're seeing this across the board. You're seeing um, that there is not infinite supply for everything if we have uh, this kind of uh, increase in caseload, and particularly if you see it almost entirely across the country and there's a surge in demand for testing in most states now and across most of the populace, it's going to start putting stress on on supplies, and, and that really triggers uh, the need to, that kind of demand, that kind of uh, spike in demand at that volume uh, requires you to think about how it is that you're going to um, be able to respond to it. So when we when we started, you know, the first uh, the, the modeling indicated with the type of caseload we were seeing that we'd probably need about sixty to eighty thousand tests a day. But that was assuming, uh, you know, probably positive tests in the uh, several thousand, maybe five thousand per day range, and we're seeing easily double that. Uh, now every day. So that that's just putting a lot of stress on the system. And when you say supplies, I mean, are you talking about the swabs, the reagents, things like that, like we heard about at the yes. very beginning of this? Yes. Well, even just like if you speak to some of these manufacturers, uh, they're now starting to see shortages in, you know, small plastic parts like the, the tops of the small vials that the uh, swabs go into. There's there's an incredible number of pieces, like there's something like 11 different plastic pieces that some of these manufacturers have to acquire and get and assemble in order to put together their testing kit. So it, it, there's just uh, all really all the different supplies that go into creating this are getting stressed when there's this much demand simultaneously. So then do you think that that number in terms of being able to conduct you know, more than 110,000 tests or so per day that that could be in jeopardy. I, I ask because there are some studies that are suggesting that California needs to be at like three times that number. Well, yeah, I don't think that, uh, I don't think with the, I think with the current type of test, which is a molecular PCR test, which is really just the kind that we often talk about where someone gets a swab usually stuck up their nose and it's put in a vial and it's sent off to a lab and they have these high-throughput machines uh, with robotics that run them through that. that. That kind of capacity that's there, I think, with the type of supply chain that I think Catherine was talking about earlier, which is not just sending everything to Quest and LabCorp, but getting it to other labs and using techniques such as pooling uh, in the right circumstances of specimens, uh, we, I think we could get to uh, 200,000 or so um, tests per day with those mechanisms, if we want to get materially beyond that, I think we're going to need technology breakthroughs on alternative testing methods. And there's a lot of companies working on those, but uh, I think there are there are limits to how much we're going to be able to test just using the swabs with vials and the high throughput machines that exist today. 
Where would you say we need to be, though, to actually contain the virus or even suppress it? Well, I mean, I think we're going to have to get our positive test rates, you know, down or in terms of the number of positive cases identified down closer to where they were before this surge. Um, because if you think about the game plan we had in place, I think it was generally to be able to test and contact trace and isolate and quarantine people. Um, and the volume, so if you're getting 10,000 uh, cases a day and you've got to contact trace five to 10 people attached to 10,000 people a day, you simply don't have the volume to keep up with that. Mm-hmm. And so the probably the most important thing we can do is um, everyone should assume they're infected and everyone should assume anyone they're engaged with in the public is also infected and wear a mask, socially distance, wash your hands. I know it sounds trite, but it's unbelievably powerful. The best way we could contain this virus and still interact out in public. And if we can really rigorously do those things and then start to reopen in a prudent way, I think we can get the caseload back down. The testing volume demands could be more manageable. Contact tracing could be um, effective at those volumes, but we really we really need to bat the, the number back down closer to where we had it before, I think, in order for that to be highly effective. Yeah, I was seeing on CDPH's website a just over 7% positivity rate. Where does it need to be? Well, I mean, Closer ultimately, to yeah, yeah. I actually, yeah, we prefer to be at, at, at 5% if we could. Um, I mean, granted, I mean, we're seeing positivity rates in Florida and Texas in excess in different areas, in excess of 20%. So it obviously can be worse. We've seen that in New York, too, during their uh, height of their crisis. So, um, you know, granted, it could be worse than it is, but we'd certainly like to see it um, better than that. And I know the state is issuing new regulations requiring insurers to pay for the coronavirus testing for most patients. What is the hope that that will lead to? Well, I wasn't a part of that decision for obvious reasons, uh, you know, since we run a health plan. But frankly, I, I I'm just would love to see everyone who needs to get a test get a test, including Blue Shield members. And uh, so I haven't seen the regulations uh, as of yet, not exactly sure what they say, but hopefully this facilitates making sure the right people are getting a test and they don't have a financial barrier to getting a test. And we're not bankrupting the state in the process. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing and speculating that was the, the goal that would make sense to me. And, um, you know, from my vantage point, running a health plan, this is like the biggest crisis I've seen in my career uh, in terms of public health. We want to make sure our members are are healthy, and if they need to get a test, they get a test, and we'll cover it. How worried are you, as some experts are, about testing delays worsening when flu season hits? Yes. I mean, it's already not at an acceptable level in terms of the turnaround time, and that's been because there's such been such a spike in demand, and it's stress supplies and the the operational volumes that can be handled. Uh, I think some of the things Catherine was talking about in terms of moving some of these tests to other labs can definitely help with that. But um, I do worry that if we have an intense flu season or anything else hits us, uh, there are other health things, uh, issues that can hit um, at that time. It can be a problem. I think that's why it's so critical for us, frankly, to, to, to do these what people call non-pharmaceutical interventions, wear a mask, you know, shelter in place when you can, socially distance when you're out there, wash your hands. I mean, it couldn't be more critical uh, for us because I think if we do that and we're disciplined about it, then we'll get this back under control and we'll be able to uh, manage it more effectively in the fall when we're going to have to deal with other things. Well, Paul Markovich, I know you need to leave us, but just very quickly, you mentioned getting the tests to the right places, testing the right people. I mean, are there still problems getting testing to other to certain parts of the state, say more remote areas of the state? Well, when, uh, we were we managed to get a statewide network of collection sites in place, including every county in the state. So I think there's a pretty good infrastructure in place. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't specific locations that couldn't use more. Um, but uh, when I left the testing task force, uh, one of the things I was most proud of is the fact that we were able to get access to testing to truly to everybody. Um, 
I, again, I think that's getting stressed now because so many people want to test at the same time. Um, but I, I do think everywhere in the state there's an opportunity to get tested, uh, and hopefully we can get the turnaround times uh, in a better place for everyone. Paul Markovich, president and CEO of Blue Shield of California, also former co-chair of California's State Testing Task Force. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. We're also joined by George Rutherford, professor of epidemiology and biostatistics and director of the Prevention and Public Health Group at UCSF's School of Medicine, and also Catherine Ho, healthcare reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. And we're talking with you, our listeners. What questions do you have about the state testing backlog or about when, where, and how to get tested for the coronavirus? What experiences have you had trying to get tested or trying to get your test results, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, insurance makes testing way more difficult. I live by the general hospital, but when I tried to get tested, they wouldn't test me because of my insurance. Imagine feeling ill, only being able to get tested somewhere on the other side of the city. Catherine Ho, I had asked uh, Paul Markovich a little bit about that uh, legislation by the state to really require health insurers to pay for more coronavirus testing. Um, can you respond to this listener's concerns? And do you think more hospitals will take up testing and processing? Well, I think that's certainly the hope. And I think that's one of the things the state in issuing the new um, regulation for insurers is trying to do. Um, you know, the the listener is, is not the first person I've heard from who has been turned away from their healthcare provider for testing. Um, although it, anecdotally, it seemed to be a bigger problem uh, earlier in the pandemic when the shortage of tests was a lot worse than it is today. Um, and I think this is this is also kind of a cost issue. Um, I, I think the state in in trying to get uh, private insurers and the private healthcare system to take up more testing is because a lot of testing has fallen on kind of the county uh, public health department shoulders, uh, and you know they're doing a lot right now. And so uh, you know I think they're trying to get the um, the private side of healthcare to to do a little bit more. And Dr. Rutherford, Paul Markovich also mentioned pooled testing. Can you talk about what that is? Sure. So pooled testing is something that we use in, for other kinds of screening programs occasionally. What it involves is taking, say, five uh, specimens from different people, essentially mixing them together, and then putting that pooled, that, 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 that combined specimen through the machine and if it's negative, we know all five people are negative. If it's positive, then you have to go back and sort out, you have to rerun each one individually to um, find out who, who the person was who was infected or, or whether there were two people infected. It's a, it has quite a bit of efficiency associated with it, but the, it's at a cost of, of sensitivity, especially for people who have very low levels of infection. Sensitivity meaning that you'll, um, that you'll probably miss some. Um, but you know, then the question comes is, you know, how sensitive do we want the the, the swab test to be? Um, and, you know, are we, have we set that bar too high? I imagine the rationale behind it, though, is also going to help potentially with these backlogs. But yes, that sensitivity question is pretty central. Well, uh, I wanted to thank uh, Catherine Ho for joining us. Thanks so much, Catherine, for your reporting on this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more with our listeners and George Rutherford after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As some COVID-19 testing facilities across California face ongoing backlogs, state health officials adopted new guidance this week on who should get their test results fastest. Those hospitalized with COVID-19 symptoms may see results within a day, but other Californians, especially those who aren't symptomatic or are not essential workers, 
may continue to experience wait times of a week or longer. We're hearing about your experiences getting tested and taking your questions. To join the conversation, call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We're joined by George Rutherford, Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and Director of the Prevention and Public Health Group at UCSF's School of Medicine. And our listeners, this listener wonders, Dr. Rutherford, I've been tested twice in West Oakland, the most recent just this morning, both times painless and easy. My results for the first were delivered within a matter of hours. My question is, who is being encouraged to be tested? It's so confusing. I was tested initially as I attended a Black Lives Matter march and again this morning because the market where I shop has had an outbreak. I have no symptoms and wanted to be sure. Isn't it most important to know who is contagious but not symptomatic? Aren't those the people we want to find? Well, among others, yeah, that's a very high priority population. And I think that having been exposed these two times, it's perfectly reasonable for you to be tested. And, uh, you know, thanks for doing it. I hope you're well. I hope you're, I hope you're uninfected. Uh, but what does it, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. What does exposure really mean when people say, yes, you should definitely come in when you're exposed? Is it, say, because you went to a store and that store had an outbreak or, you know, is it something else? And, and if you were wearing a mask in that scenario, you know, does that count as exposure? Yeah. It's a complicated question. Um, and usually there's a fairly low, low threshold for these kinds of, you know, advisories about getting tested. However, in contact tracing, where the result of you being picked up by that system and then getting, and then testing negatives that you go into quarantine, there are really strict definitions about what constitutes close contact. And it's 10 minutes unmasked within six feet, hmm. or so like sitting across a dinner table, for instance. Or uh, if the person who's infected has a mask on and you have a mask on, it's more like 30 minutes of, of contact within that um, within that that uh, that area that space, so it's it depends on a lot of different uh, different factors. Also, whether they're symptomatic or not, the the source is symptomatic or not. But it's you know those are the people in contact tracing whom we consider close contacts. Well, let's go to Joe in San Jose. Hi, Joe. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm really uh, just baffled by this. It feels like uh, we're four months into this thing, and I hear virtually nothing in the media about how the other countries are doing it. There's so many countries that have successfully you know, battled this virus, even without this huge economic lockdown. Per capita death rates are you know, virtually a tenth of ours. Um, so I'm wondering, what are we learning from the other guys? Again, it just feels like every every morning I wake up and it's it's like we're trying to reinvent the wheel every day. Um, it's just it's just baffling. And I know a huge part of this is the uh, the, the, the pathetic leadership at the in the, from the White House, uh, which has been criminal and resulted in what probably uh, if you were to go on the per capita death rate of say Japan, we're 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 probably uh, fifty times that, uh, maybe sixty times that. But anyway, I'm I'm really wondering what's going on with um with what are we learning from the outside yeah joe i i hear you i mean it feels like we've had months of this and the fact that we still haven't built up the fundamental infrastructure to deal with our testing issues is really frustrating and the fact that it seems other countries have been able to uh, dr rutherford i mean can you talk about why their efforts have been successful because it is really intertwined with testing and contact tracing right yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, there are also are also questions. There are also countries that are not doing well at all. Brazil comes to mind. India comes to mind. Russia comes to mind. Mexico comes to mind. Uh, but the Western European countries uh, that, and even some of the Central European countries that had large epidemics uh, with high mortality rates, and then the and they seem to get over it, and uh, are starting to reopen in earnest now. Um, I, I think it's sort of like New York City. So what's going on in New York? Why aren't the why aren't the case rates coming back up in New York? Well, they are to a certain extent. And you know, the basic supposition is that people have learned their lesson and they're wearing masks and they're being careful. Um, so I we look at for the at these places for lessons all the time. 
uh, and but understand that certain societies have very different takes on privacy than than we do. So in South Korea, for instance, if you're named as a contact, if you as if you if you get infected and you're named as a case, you know the the police come the sent the national police come in and confiscate your cell phone, uh, figure out where you've been. They find you on, on, they look at your credit card receipts to figure out where you've spent money. And then they'll find you on uh, tracking, video tracking software from their closed circuit TV and figure out exactly where you went and exactly uh, whom you came into contact with. And then we'll pull those contacts in. So it's, that's a sort of system I don't see quite see working here, but your, but your basic supposition is correct that things are going on here that shouldn't be going on we had we were on the way to seeing a dropping in incidence rate, just like the European countries did, just like China did, and then things went south, and they went south in a big hurry, starting around Memorial Day when the cases started to go back up, and now the death rates are going back up, and that's just unprecedented to have a second wave like that in a in a country. Well, we're joined now by Anna Ibarra. She's a health reporter for Cal Matters. Thanks so much for joining us, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. And we were just talking about, uh, in part, effective contact tracing. And I know that you've done some reporting on contact tracing, particularly in black and brown communities. Can you tell us what you're finding about effectiveness of contact tracing there? Sure. So from the very beginning, it was clear that contact tracing would be a challenge. It would require more work in some of these communities, um, like the black and brown communities. A lot of of it has to do with um, different factors, whether it's language, um, but a lot of it also has to do with um, uh, just cultural competency as well as trust uh, from these communities um, and and, uh, responding to a call from the government, you know? So uh, yes, it's, you know, it's still uh, being a, it's still a challenge. Um, I am hearing that, you know, it requires a lot more work um, to, try to contact uh, some of these com- uh, people in these communities, um, but it, it is being done. I know the state is has said that it's putting a lot of effort into, um, you know, uh, hiring contact tracers that um, can can speak the language or, you know, are from these communities um, so they can better connect with these people. Right. So you're saying the cultural competency, say, of the person who calls someone on the phone for contact tracing and says, I work with the government and I want you to answer all these questions about your whereabouts. Correct. <laughs> and so how has that gotten better? What have been effective strategies? Yeah, so a lot of the efforts that are seem to be working are actually getting, like I said, hiring people from these same communities. So at the very beginning, um, some of these contract tracers um, uh, were, and, and some still are, uh, people who work for the county or the city, you know, who work for government, um, and they were being, uh, their new role was to be a contact tracer for, for that community. Um, but now, you know, they've also, um, some groups have, had, um, their role is to find people who, again, are from the community. There was an effort to get people like barbers and people who might be out of work, um, but are very connected to their community um, to be those contact tracers because, you know, people know them and they're trusted and it's much easier to have a conversation with, let's say, your barber than it is someone who is calling from the government, right? So um, there were efforts um, and there's there still are efforts to try to increase these again, people who live in these communities to actually do some of this contact tracing and get them trained to do that. Well, Justin writes, my wife needs to have an outpatient procedure done, but her provider is going to take over a week to COVID test her before they even schedule the procedure. In the meantime, she's been having lots of issues and they need to figure out why she's having these problems. Is there a way we can get testing faster and be able to provide it to the health provider so they can schedule something sooner? Anna Ibar, do you have any thoughts for Justin? I mean, are people paying out of pocket to get tests faster? They, they are. So I'm hearing from people who are, and again, these are in certain communities, they're not widely available, but people are um, going to um, urgent centers or, or um, you know, locations that offer what's called rapid testing. And so these co- they, this, this is an out-of-pocket cost of 
I've heard $125 and $150. So the people uh, pay this so they can get the results within an hour. So they stand, you know, in, in lines and, and they, the couple hours they're waiting for to actually get the test done. But once they actually have this test, they get their, those results and sometimes as, as quickly as, as 30 minutes. Um, so yes, there are people that are resorting to that type of testing. It's not, again, it's not widely available and not available in all communities um, as of right now. And sort of related, this listener asks, I'm curious what this means for people who are taking tests before dentist or doctor's appointments. Many dentists are requiring tests. What tier do these fall under? Do you know, Anibara? Yeah, so some of these, um, my understanding is that they fall under would be a tier two. Um, so this is with many um, people who don't have symptoms but uh, need some sort of um, procedure. Now, if you're in a hospital, need a hospital procedure, you do fall under tier one. Um, so you would get a priority testing if it's an emergency. Um, so yes, but uh, something like a dentist, my understanding is you would uh, fall under kind of the second level. Um, and, you know, it, again, it would require a provider appointment or a provider referral. So that would mean, say, I don't know, in the average testing, that maybe it would be a two or three day wait as opposed to something faster? Correct. Well, let me go to listener Lois in Berkeley. Hi, Lo Hi Lois. Hi. Um, I just want to, ex um, my experience was I called, I haven't had any symptoms, and my friends haven't had any symptoms since March, but I thought I would do my duty and go get tested. So I called, and it took about two weeks to get the appointment, but once I was there, it was in Berkeley in a youth center, and it was an almost pleasant experience. There were just three people ahead of me, and it went very quickly, and it was over in no time. I got the results back in about a week. The first time they tested me, texted me and said I would have it in two days, but they kept postponing it and postponing it and finally got it back in a week, mm. and it was negative. Um, I have a friend who keeps having procedures done, and he's been tested five times now, and they seem to do it very quickly for him, and he's still negative. Just when you When you were waiting that week, Lois, did you self-isolate, or did you still kind of go no, about your daily routine? I didn't have any symptoms. I was just doing uh, my right, normal, uh, I live in a senior community, a senior building. I live across the street from Berkeley Bowl and Walgreens. So mainly my, my life consists of uh, once a day or so going across the street with my mask and my gloves and distancing when I get there because they're very careful to only let 25 people in at a time in that big store. Um, and uh, I haven't had any symptoms the whole time. So I was just doing it to contribute to the statistics, really. Mm. Well, I'm glad to hear you were negative, and thanks so much for calling with your story. Okay. Bye. Well, this listener writes, as of two weeks ago, my employer, Apple Retail, offered weekly testing. This is offered in the form of home testing kits from Quest Diagnostics. Yesterday, I sent off my second test. FedEx is being used for shipping. The home kit test instructions are simple, and the test kit is easy to use. I received my first test results negative two days later by email. The test kit instructions state that if test results are positive, I would be contacted with a phone call. George Rutherford, I mean, what can you tell us more about these home test kits? I mean, I'm assuming they don't use sort of the nasal swab system, first of all. And second of all, how accurate do they tend to be? And, and what's the status of making these you know, more available? So, you know, they're actually home collection kits and the tests are done in a regular laboratory. So what you're doing is collecting the samples. Um, most of them use nasal sort of. Oh, they do. Okay. Not 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 nasopharyngeal, but but just nasal swabs in the in the lower part of your nose, um, and it's a kind of Q-tip swab, um, and you run it around both sides of your nose, and break it off and send it in. Um, they're they're you know they're pretty accurate. They're, they're not bad um, in this in the grand scheme of things. You know the problem is is whose whose nasal swab is it? Um, and if you absolutely have to have a negative one, you know, why don't you, you know, are you sure it's not the dogs? I'm not being facetious here. Uh, but there, there are questions of provenance in, in these things. And so those are, that's one of the issues uh, with them. And one of the things that I had been hearing about is, you know, saliva tests, right? These sort of spit tests. Yeah. Uh, how do those compare? 
those are a little less sensitive, uh, but they're a lot easier to collect. Uh, and it's, uh, it's the sort of thing that you could do almost that you can do daily. Uh, if you, uh, if you wanted to, it's, it's not going to, you know, obviously it's not going to wear out the, your, your nasal pharynx. Um, you know, one of the concerns is that the more and more you start scrubbing the nasal pharynx with these swabs, the, you're going to start getting erosion and, and, you know, you know, and bleeding and things, but the, the saliva salivary ones are, are uh, they have somewhat lower sensitivity, but they are a lot easier to collect. And interestingly, I've been hearing health experts saying that frequency of testing and a quick turnaround time is almost more important than accuracy, especially right now when you're still in the process of trying to get a handle on the disease. That's that's fair. I mean, accuracy within you know within bounds of you know between eighty and ninety percent. It's not if it's completely inaccurate, it's useless, right? But it's trying to keep it up. You know, there's some you have a little bit more given accuracy, uh, and if you're trying to really establish that someone is absolutely uninfected, then you're going to want to test them a couple of times. Like, uh, for instance, some colleges are looking at that. Residential colleges are looking at that as as people come in. And just to mention colleges, as as uh, residential colleges start to want to have students returning um, to get them tested, that's going to create another big run on the system uh, here in about a month. Well, let me go to caller Tracy in Hayward. Hi, Tracy. Join us. Hello. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on. I have a question and I also have my experience. So I'm an essential worker in, in the construction field and I also have asthma. So that's an underlying condition. So I went and got tested at this church and they never called me. They said test results in 48 to 72 hours. They never called me, never tested, texted me back, and I never got any results. So I was taking it that maybe I was, I must have been negative. Then I went and got uh, a month later. I went and got a antibody test with Quest Diagnostics because a friend of mine, he's an acupuncturist, and he and he got his and he tested positive for the antibodies. And so then I got my results back within 72 hours, and I tested positive for the antibodies. And I and I was wondering, I never had coronavirus, but then I remember back in December, late December, I had the flu, and it was a really bad flu, and I was knocked on my butt for like a week, and it took a long time for me to recover. So I was wondering, was it, I guess the coronavirus was here in December, and how long is the, how accurate is the antibody test, and is my immunity, how long will that be? Thank you so much. I'll take my answer off the air. Tracy, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Glad you're okay. And also, uh, great questions. Dr. Rutherford. Sure, you wrapped them all, all the, all the big immunology questions up into one. Um, you probably did not have coronavirus in, in December. Um, if there were any cases in the United States at that point in time, there were, might have been one or two. Um, we're trying to learn a lot more about the early history of coronavirus both in China as well as in North America. And while we think it was probably here in January, um, December would be a kind of a push. Um, and it was a very bad flu season with very bad influenza. Uh, what your positive antibody test means is that you had coronavirus at some point in time. I'm um, guessing by the fact that you're out doing construction work that you're not 75 years old. Um, and uh, so, you should. Uh, you you may well have had asymptomatic infection, um, and I, I think that that's probably uh, probably the best part. And you may well have been positive when you got tested at the church, and that's unfortunate that they didn't call you with your results, or else that would have helped piece this story together a little bit better. In terms of immunity, not everybody who gets coronavirus develops immunity, uh, the right kind of immunity, which are called neutralizing antibodies. We're learning more about some other types of immunity, um, but um, and we've yet to see a, a case, a true case of reinfection, although we look for them very hard. What would appear from the other coronaviruses, the ones that cause common colds, the alpha coronaviruses, as opposed to this one, which is a beta coronavirus, is that immunity is pretty transient. It lasts for, the, for a period of a few months. So what I would encourage you to do when you go out to your construction site is to make sure you wear a mask and make sure everybody around you is wearing a mask too. In terms of his ability to get an antibody test, I mean, how 
how easy it is to is it to get one of those and you know is that a good option if you really want to find out about your immunity or potential to have had coronavirus it's a um they're not easy to get um and often people who get antibody tests i mean this is i'm i'm kind of curious how he how he managed to pull it off it's quite a feat um they're really done diagnostically uh for people who've had kind of odd symptoms, um, you know, have a have pulmonary emboli or sort of small clots, um, otherwise unexplained, trying to figure out if, you know, because you can get that as a somewhat later phenomena uh, in the course of a COVID infection, who may, whose swab may have turned negative. And so you're still trying to dig out and look for the antibody, look for evidence of the infection. That's one reason you get them. Another reason you get them is for people who are, um, who are going to donate plasma uh, that is uh, uh, convalescent plasma that is being given to people in very uh, advanced stages of deterioration and intensive care units. That's a, a kind of like a blood donation where they're donating their antibodies. Um, but they're not a lot of, uh, there's not, it's, they're not that easy to get and they're used in relatively narrow circumstances. Well, Victor writes, recently I helped a family member schedule a COVID test at the Pier 30 location in San Francisco due to language barriers. First off, the appointments are backed up two weeks. Second, when I told him to go ahead of his appointment, he was turned away and told only firefighters, police officers, etc., would be allowed to get tested on the spot. I had previously done exactly that and was allowed to get tested ahead of my appointment, and I was not asked if I was an essential worker. My final point is that the website is only in English, and it makes it very difficult for anyone seeking testing who does does not speak English. And in your reporting, have you heard stories like this? Yes, absolutely. So um, he makes two good points. There's, you know, um, the again, the language barrier. When you do go on some of these sites to try to set up an appointment, not all of them do have an option for a, another language other than English. Um, also, um, there are people who are now who have told me they've now getting tested for a second or third time, and they do share that their you know second experience is much different than their first. So you know if they were able to get uh, an appointment um, quite easily the first time, they notice that uh, the more recent um, their more their second try is uh, is a lot more difficult. Um, they are having to wait longer to find an appointment. And again, the results are also taking longer. So yes, people are definitely seeing the difference, especially now that people are get, are being tested more than once. Well, let, let me go to Linda in Palo Alto. Hi, Linda. Yes, hi. Uh, could you tell me how uh, and where these uh, um, saliva tests are available or being made publicly um, uh, you know, because I ha this is the first I've heard that there is a saliva test, and I've been listening to both KQED and other places, and I haven't heard of this before. Uh, so it's where is it available, and how is it processed? You go again and turn it in back to your doctor, or you can see it like a pregnancy test. It's available for you right away. So that's the first question. And the other thing, uh, just an observation, that uh, listening to one of your shows on KQED, they were talking about in the United Kingdom, they're doing some research about of getting their antibodies from uh, a different an animal source, being alpacas and llamas and this sort of thing. And I thought that was strange, but they said it's very close. Their antibodies mm -hmm. are very close to ours, and that was astounding to me. So going back to the first question, yeah, how nice. are these available for oral saliva testing, and how are they processed? Thank you. Dr. Rutherford. Well, unless you're a major league baseball player or play for the NBA or major league soccer, you're not going to be able to get one. Um, those are the people who are getting them right now. At least that's my understanding of it. Um, all in the little bubble they've created in Florida uh, for professional sports and, and Arizona. Um, it's, uh, they're not available in Northern California, to my knowledge. Um, the way they're processed is that you're actually looking for it's the same stuff. You're looking for, for viral RNA. Uh, so it's a polymerase chain reaction uh, test, just like the just like the nasal swabs. I haven't heard this about the alpacas, and the vicuñas, and the guanacos, and the whatever the other one is, the llamas. Uh, but uh, it's interesting. There's a lot of you know a lot of new therapeutics and in infectious diseases involve monoclonal antibodies, um, which can be either of human or or other origin. And you know we use a lot of um, Historically, we've used a lot of, of um, 
antibody therapy from uh, other species, like you know, like horse serum for certain things and those kinds of things. So it wouldn't surprise me at all, but it's an interesting story. I got to dig it out now. Well, Marilee asks, how accurate are the tests now? I mean, we had heard uh, quite a bit about false negatives. Is that still a big problem? It, it is to us. I mean, let's, so we're talking about the swabs, the, uh, yes, the, the test for RNA, tests, even. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there, uh, you can, there, there are problems with, with, uh, collection where you don't get enough of a specimen. Um, but there's just sort of an inherent uh, issue with any of these, uh, with any of these tests, especially with people who have very, very low levels, uh, that there could be false negatives. And there's a, there's a kind of a perfect where the people have tried to model out what's a perfect time to get tested after exposure. And it's sort of on the order of five to seven days where the risk of false negatives is, 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 uh, is lowest. Antibody tests are a, a n- another uh, issue. And if you screen large numbers of people with antibody tests and where the background prevalence is very low, the, the predictive value of the positive predictive value of those tests uh, can be not great. Um, meaning that if you have a, a positive test, probably half of those are really false positives. But that's a much more complicated question. To... Well, Dr. Rutherford, we just have 30 seconds. And I'm wondering if you could just give me your assessment of testing. I mean, nationally, the Fed say testing is on track. The state touts it's 110,000 or so tests while also releasing these new guidelines. I mean, where are we at with this? We're way behind, right? There's no way testing is on track. Um, I mean, I don't know if you saw the pictures of Dodger Stadium. Uh, which as a Giants fan kind of did my heart uh, good, but the, you know, these gigantic lines of people trying to, trying to get tested over the 4th of July weekend, you know, there's no way we have enough uh, testing available. We've been behind the eight ball since the beginning with this. We kind of caught up for a little while, but now with new cases, new surges in, in infection, um, we're, we got a ways to go to, to, to dig out of it. But people should still seek it out. If it's if they're on the if it's an in, if it's indicated absolutely yes but don't seek it out just to figure out figure out if you can go to a party that night. George Rutherford of UCSF and Ana Ibarra with Health with Cal Matters. Thanks so much for joining us. Susan Britton produced today's segment. Inform is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Lauberg, Ariana Prail, and Blanca Torres. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.